0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith
2: Weekly.
1: Welcome to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, Autumn and I will catch up. We're going to talk about Virginia's decision to abolish the death penalty, talk a little bit about the mass shootings that took place over a span of a week, both in Atlanta, Georgia, and Boulder, Colorado. And later in the pod, we're going to be interviewing Chen Caps from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and talk about violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good episode. Autumn, how are you doing this week?
0: I'm doing well. It is spring. Spring break is over. My kids are back in school. It wasn't like last year's spring break where they sent them home to us and then they were home with us (laughs) until August. So I'm doing fabulous. How are you?
1: We're doing well. Oh, uh, my wife and I are on the road this week in Dallas, Texas. I came down here for a quick overnight trip. So it's a little different We've, with being both vaccinated now, uh, being down on the road and in a hotel. is a little strange, uh, but uh, a little sense of normalcy. So that was nice. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're we're doing well. The sunshine down here. Uh, it's Thursday this week, and uh, we want to say a prayer for our friends in the southeast today as uh, they're gonna be experiencing some bad weather later on uh, today on Thursday. And when people be listening to this, obviously it's gonna be Friday. So we hope that uh, everybody's able to stay safe and secure uh, after the storms move through Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee. So our prayers and thoughts go out to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, Autumn, lots of uh, things in the news this week. Uh, Let's first start with uh, Virginia's decision to abolish the death penalty. Uh, After years and years of of, of people advocating for the abolishment of the death penalty, uh, showing clear evidence of its racial prejudice against people of color, uh, Governor Northam uh, uh, finally was able to sign legislation that abolished the death penalty, which uh, was seen as a, a big win, especially for a southern state to do so.
0: Yes, you know, the death penalty is one of those things that is a very hot button issue. People typically aren't sort of in the middle on that. They're either extremely pro or extremely anti. And I think it's tough because there is no doubt that there are crimes that happen that, you know, you listen and they're heinous and it's open and shut and you think that is a that is a just reward for what you right. did but at the same time until our criminal justice system is 100% accurate the death penalty is is not fair it's just not until we can prove you know there's never any mistakes there's no racial bias we have you know all of the evidence was collected fairly representation was given um until it's completely fair and balanced which spoiler alert it won't ever be the death penalty just—it's not just.
1: And, and you bring up a lot of interesting points because I mean, if you think about it, would we rather put a murderer who's been convicted in jail for the remainder of their life without any hope of parole, or would we rather practice the death penalty and occasionally get it wrong and put somebody who's innocent to death? To me, you would always want to err on the latter side, right? Of of, okay, why, because once you kill somebody, you kill them, you murder them, uh, and and it's over with, but if they're still alive and the justice system made a mistake, and guess what, the justice system makes mistakes, then they're able to be released and get on with the rest of their life, but once they have been executed, it's all over with, and then the other point you make that I think is extremely, uh, important is that there is, no evidence whatsoever to suggest the death penalty uh, somehow convinces people not to commit murder. If that were the case, then there would be no murders in Texas and Oklahoma and states that pretty liberal with their death penalty uh, and executions. Um, and so you know it, it's not a, it's not a deterrent to heinous crimes. so the reality is it really serves no purpose, except it makes people feel better that somehow in their mind, they are uh, executing justice when really what they're executing is revenge upon someone they believe has committed a, a crime against them and their family and their fellow constituents. And like we've already suggested, a lot of times that is incorrect uh dna has been able to prove that on several occasions and then also it, it again as you have stated uh it's just so imbalanced uh who gets executed and who does not uh not only in a racial racially biased way but also in a socioeconomic way because if you're wealthy in this country there is a strong likelihood you are not going to be executed because you're able to put a legal defense uh, that, that will provide you, at the very least, life imprisonment if you committed this crime or convicted of this crime. But if you are a person of color or a person of uh, poverty, then there's a strong likelihood if you get charged with a, a crime that would put you on death row, you're going to be executed because you have no way to defend yourself.
0: Exactly. And there's also the whole element of it doesn't save the government any money. Because the trials and all of the work that goes into actually putting someone to death, I mean, sometimes it can take up to 25 years for that to happen by the time you get through all the appellate situations. Mm -hmm. And the other piece of that is all of the folks who are a part of that execution and the impact it has on them. Um, Mm -hmm. Just because that's your job doesn't mean that that's something that you support or that's a choice that you want to live with for the rest of your life. And so it has, it has some really deep, you know, the philosophical and ethical um, implications beyond just the person who you put to death. And so I just think it's, it's a dark mark on our country. And I'm so thankful to see places like Virginia starting to move in the right direction.
1: Absolutely. Well, speaking of dark marks, uh, the country has now Uh, suffered again uh, uh, two terrible tragedies uh, involving gun violence and mass shootings. One occurred last week in Atlanta, Georgia. Eight people were gunned down at three spas that were owned by Asian Americans. It seems as though the the gunman was targeting Asian owned businesses. Uh, Six of the eight people that were killed were of Asian descent. And then this week, uh, attention was turned to Boulder, Colorado, when a gentleman walked inside at the grocery store there in Boulder and began shooting his AR-15, killing 10 individuals. Um, it just I just continue to shake my head, you know, said it till I'm blue in the face, and just we've gotten into this secular type of debate where these shootings take place, uh, there's a quick uh denouncement of these acts uh liberals want gun legislation conservatives say now is not the time and the ball rolls on the days roll on until another shooting happens it's just it's it's a horrible horrible predicament we are in uh because nothing is getting done absolutely nothing and people continue to suffer at the hands of gun violence and i'm just I, I i i i don't know what else to do i mean yeah. if, i mean if I, you were if you're looking at me right now my hands are up i i don't right. i don't his, I, I don't know what else to do shoulders
0: are in his ears he's just really unclear and i I get it. I'm a Texas girl. I grew up in a house where there were deer heads mounted on the walls in my living room. Um, my first word as a child was dia because there were deer heads everywhere. Um, mm. you know, I come from a family who chews tobacco and shoots things and has red solo cups and fish fries. Like I get it. But <laughs> here's the situation: they don't need an AR 15. Like, that's bananas. Like that is a war a war like machine it's not for killing a deer it's not for hunting raccoons or whatever you're going to do it's for killing people it is just Mm -hmm. for killing people and it's absurd that they're still legal
1: right you know and the situation in boulder it would seem like if uh, ar-15s assault rifles were outlawed that certainly would have prevented uh that shooting from taking place even though there's so many others yeah and so many others but they're also i mean they would literally have. Have to be outlawed because uh, what happened in the Clinton administration, when assault there was assault weapons ban, that they grandfathered so many in that there is still this this huge uh, population of AR-15s in circulation. Um, that eventually somebody's going to have to step up and show leadership on this and say this is not the kind of uh, weaponry that needs to be in the hands of the general population. No. This is a war-like Uh, weapon that, rightly so, uh, uh, soldiers, the military, trained individuals should have access to in warlike situations. But the average, you know, the average citizen does not need this. There's already limitations to warlike weaponry. I mean, nobody can go down to Walmart and buy a tank. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, so, I mean, it's just... There are already bans when it comes to military-grade weaponry, and I think this needs to be added to that list, and it just, they need to go away. Now, in a circumstance in Atlanta, there's a little different circumstance, that seems to be a situation where the Asian community was targeted by an individual who was having a bad day, using the words of the local sheriff there in town, but also uh this this Careful. ramification the consequences oh. <laughs> of a purity culture that suggest that he could not help himself because he was so tempted by his sexual desires that he had to take out that frustration uh on uh on the women that he was being tempted by, and it just it, it just asinine and just this. This horrible, horrible attempt at justifying, or, ca- or at least, um, I don't know what you would say, easing the responsibility that this person has on doing what they have done—the the gunman uh, walking into these Asian-owned businesses and, and causing such havoc. So, uh, just, just horrible, 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 and. I'm just, I'm fed up with it. I just, I've said it again. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'll, unfortunately, we'll have to say it again several more times. I'm just absolutely fed up with it.
0: Yeah, it's absurd.
1: Absolutely. Well, later on in the pod, uh, you and I sat down with uh, Sha Chen Caps from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Uh, Sha Chen uh, is of Asian descent. She talks a little bit about her feelings when she heard, uh, what took place in Atlanta Georgia. She lives, her and her family live uh, in Atlanta, uh, talks a little bit about what it was like gr- growing up uh, and then immigrating to the United States and everything that she had heard about the West. And it's just a really enlightening conversation. So I hope uh, that you're able to stay and listen to our interview with Shaqin Caps uh, right now.
2: Lot Kerry is proud to bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest pastors coast to coast. Our new podcast, Pilgrimages of Striving and Thriving, delivers wisdom from the black church for the whole church. Find us wherever you get your podcast or listen online at lotcary.org. That's L-O-T-T-C-A-R-E-Y.org. We look forward to the pilgrimage with you.
3: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we've got a very special guest with us today, Aha Chen Caps. Last week, Robert Aaron Long, a young white male, drove to three spas near Atlanta, Georgia. He walked into each and opened fire, killing eight people, six of Asian descent. While the United States has a concerning history in our treatment of Asian immigrants and citizens, there's been an upward trend in violence that has developed over the last several years. Especially during this last year in a global pandemic. We're very fortunate to have Shao Chen with us today. She is the Foundation President and Chief Development Officer for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in Atlanta, Georgia. She provides overall leadership and management of the work of the CBF Foundation and CBF's fund development strategies. She came to faith as a result of the work of Baptist missionaries in Singapore. She's also a graduate of Baylor University and of the Carver School of Social Work. Shao Chen. Thank you for being with us today, and welcome to Good Faith Weekly.
2: Thank you, Mitch. Thank you for
0: inviting me today. Yes, we're so thankful that you're here. Um, And just before we get
2: started, can you tell us a little bit about your family story and your heritage? Yeah, sure. Um, So um, I would be considered first-generation Asian here in America. I actually immigrated. Um, from Indonesia, Jakarta, Indonesia, which is where I was born. Uh, that is where uh, my parents met, got married. My father is um, was originally from China. He actually escaped World War II um, to Jakarta, Indonesia. Um, his parents had... Um, during the war uh, basically forced them to leave as a way of surviving to make sure that um, the family survives. And at 13, he uh, jumped onto a train and um, headed to Jakarta, Indonesia, where they knew they had um, an uncle there. And so um, an uncle basically uh, adopted him. And um, so starting at 13, that's where he he grew up was in Jakarta and um, met my mother in um, in Medan, Jakarta, which is um, a region in Jakarta. And they got married there. And basically, we all four of us, four girls were born in Jakarta, Indonesia. And like any Chinese uh, family, uh, traditional Chinese uh, family, they were very focused on uh, education, really valued education because of that value that they had and the desire for their children to succeed in life. They um, really was seeking uh, the best way, the best education system for, for their uh, four girls and decided that neighboring Singapore was a good place to uh, send their kids to go to school. So um, my parents basically took all four of us to Singapore for the sole purpose of uh, gaining a good education there. Mm-hmm. And uh, both received a permanent residency there. So we basically had two homes. We grew up in Singapore, but uh, we also had a home in Jakarta and would visit Jakarta during a school vacation. Mm-hmm. So I spent Really, I would say most of my formative childhood growing up years all the way th- all, all the way through high school in Singapore, mm. which is a multi racial multi ethnic country and um, and when I graduated from high school in Singapore, uh, again following kind of the path of a uh, traditional Chinese family again wanting to have the best education, and my parents believing that going to America would be the best route for their children. All four of us uh, was were, were sent to uh, the United States to uh, colleges to get our college degree. So that's how I landed as uh, an international student initially with an F-1 visa, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, first to Bloomington, Indiana, attending Indiana University, and transferred to Baylor University, graduated, um, my undergrad at Baylor, and then went on to uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky for my master's in social work through the Carver School of Church Social Work. Uh, so that's kind of, in a nutshell, sort of my background. And uh, I married a missionary kid. Uh, wow. And it happens to be the Baptist missionary that was responsible, that were responsible for Helping me come to know Christ and disciple me afterwards, and all that was not planned. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, yeah, and uh, got a green card, you know, went through the whole green card process and became a U.S. citizen, um, I believe, four years later. So, about 2000 was when I was uh, sworn in to become a U.S. Um, citizen. So, So nobody warned you
3: about uh, marrying an MK.
2: No, no one. Well, my parents did.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Wise, wise parents.
2: (laughs) My parents, basically, I said my husband, his name is Paul, had three strikes against him. (laughs) You know, he was a missionary kid. He was poor. And uh, coming from a traditional Chinese family, being white was also not a... uh, readily acceptable, you know, interracial was not readily sure. acceptable. So sure. he had three strikes again.
3: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for sharing your story. Uh, wow. Yeah, just a welcome. great story. Thank you again for, for sharing it with us. Now, obviously uh, we're here under uh, a very uh, cl- a cloud of darkness, really, to be quite honest with you, mm-hmm. uh, the horrendous events that unfolded last week uh, around Atlanta, Georgia. When you first heard about the attacks in Atlanta on Asian Americans, uh, as an immigrant now as a an Asian uh, American citizen, what first came to mind when uh, you heard the news? Yeah,
2: yeah, that's interesting. You know, it seems like a blur now when I uh, thought about it. it was mm-hmm. you know when I woke up that morning and saw it in my news feed, my um, Apple app news feed. It was. I had to kind of pause. It was. I was really, I was shocked, but at the same time, not shocked where I was telling myself in my head, I was thinking it's okay. It's happening now. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost like a, something that was, I knew was sort of pending, like, and then felt the sort of confirmation. Okay. This is real. And this is mm-hmm. happening now. And um, of course, part of that, most of us have heard of the increasing violence against the Asian American community, uh, especially as uh, during uh, the start of the pandemic, you know, with um, all that, you know, there's been all the reports that I've been hearing and the stories that maybe people are not as familiar with, but there's been, you know, many reported incidents of individuals and even elderly, Asians who are shoved to the ground and sure. you know all these things and so it's kind of almost a, a culmination where I was shocked sad but also was like okay this is it's confirmation this right. is sure. real because yeah. I think there's always a part of me that wanted to believe it's not real yeah. mm-hmm. and that it was not going to come to this. Sure. Right. So.
3: so those initial reactions were one of really as you in your words, shock and surprised, But then in just as quickly you began to realize, okay, this is the byproduct of what mm-hmm. uh, you know my my ancestors, uh, my relatives have been experienced for quite some time. Mm-hmm. This is this is the, the outcome of a bigotry and you know, racism uh, uh in this american experiment and so yep. so that that's interesting
2: yeah mm-hmm. and it's also i think um how quickly the story unfolded too you know with the mm-hmm. the information that came out the details about the shooter and his yep. sex addiction and all sort of also culminated with all the sort of stereotypes and the um you know, I don't know how to put it, but these um, the objectification of um of Asians and in, in you know in the media, in the in, you know, general public about how we're viewed, all that sort of came to a head for me, you know, with all the details of this shooter and um it was very disturbing. Um, you know, the quick the quick dismissal of it's not a, a racial crime um was very um from Someone who's Asian, listening to that, it's just really unbelievable to think about Wait, You know, we are, we have this culture that we, belief in the words of a murderer over the six Asian women that are lying dead in front of us. It's just mm. mind-boggling. For me, it was so obvious. How can it not be racially motivated? Right. Yeah. <laughs> six Asian women who were targeted and three Asian spas, not just any spas, right. Asian spas, you know, all these things that was so obvious to me. Um, it's just, it was mind-boggling. It was, it was hard to kind of grasp and understand what was really, going
3: on. Yeah. It was startling. Uh, And and your words earlier, I think, probably better sets the tone. It was startling. But then after just a brief moment, you go, well, yeah, this is the way uh, especially uh, white Anglo conservative culture uh, reacts to this. They quickly begin to dismiss the racial overtones of this crime uh, and these murders. And tried to shift the blame for a a sexual temptation that this young man had. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sexual addiction to this young man. It was just, I mean, like mind mind boggling, Mm -hmm. mind blowing. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. this is what, you know, this is what a white patriarchal society has been doing for centuries Uh, Mm -hmm. and making excuses for this kind of behavior and dismissing this kind of behavior uh, and shifting the blame from this the person's bigotry and racism to somehow he was tempted beyond his ability to restrain himself. It's just crazy.
2: Which further, um, uh, sort of further um, makes the sort of the objectification of these uh, women even greater you know they were just temptations you know it's it's all that kind of messaging I think people don't realize how powerful that can be in in how we start to view victims you know I've worked with victims for 20 plus years too and you know that's that's an old playbook Mm -hmm. you know of of victim shaming and and you know if they're if they're prostitutes or they're you know um, sex workers um, you know it shifts people's thinking um, and it's, it was so, for me, it was so obvious uh, with how things shifted so quickly with, you know, focusing on his sex addiction and then objectifying these women as the targets of his addiction. In other words, blaming them for, you know, his, um, what he's done. And um, yeah, so it's all, there's a lot of intersections, of course, of um, racism here, but also we can't dismiss the gender-based violence here too, which I think is another really important topic and probably can go on talking for a long time with that. And also the other piece has to do with, you know, um, our culture's obsession with, with our rights to own guns. And, mm-hmm. you know, those three big issues, I think, sort of coalesce um, with this uh, specific this this shooting here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah, unfortunately as Mitch and I were preparing for this interview, we were making sure we had the most up-to-date facts and since we scheduled this interview there's been another shooting. That's right. Um and it's mm-hmm. yes. I mean it's just absurd and I've seen some people comparing, you know, that you you can't register to vote and vote on the same day in Georgia
2: Correct. but you could yep. you purchase could a, a firearm it. all in one day. Yep, and kill, and I mean that's exactly what the shooter did. Mm-hmm. He purchased a gun and within However many hours, Um, he took that gun and did his thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, um, yeah, so there's the intersectionality of all those three big topics, I think, is is key in discussing this particular shooting. And we shouldn't minimize any one of those. Uh, I know that, you know, right now we're sort of talking about the racial aspects of it, but I think the other pieces are just as important. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And, just, and just percolating underneath all of that is that words matter.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: That when leadership of this country began spouting ignorance about, um, you know, calling the virus based on where it originated, right. um, that it's, it's been snowballing now for a while, which I think led to what you and Mitch have described as, of course, horror at this act, but not exactly shocked because uh-huh. we've seen this drumbeat since all of this began.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's no question that um, any president's rhetoric, I don't care if it's Trump or anyone, can have rippling effects, right? Sure. And, um, but I think it's also important to realize that certainly um, to solely blame Trump on this would be also naive on our part. Sure. And because you know, if you look at our country's history with um, how Asian Americans have been treated uh, historically, I think it it paints the picture for us that this is uh, something that is, has been going on for a long time, Mm -hmm. that such violence and uh, racism and discrimination have been going on for a long time. And really what Trump did was simply, I hate to say this, you know, he's sort of the symptom of a much bigger problem that we all have a part to play in Mm -hmm. um so i think in some ways i think we have to be careful i think with uh just blaming him because then it's a cop out because then it washes our hands off you know it's just all all trump whereas all of us i think have a role to play um more importantly a role to play in ending such violence and and taking the steps um and
0: ending it before it gets
2: to the violence right so when i
0: hear someone in my circle using language that i know is offensive and harmful um and could you know radicalize someone to stop it even if it's uncomfortable and to to educate from a place of love and then if not of love maybe a little bit of elbow grease Mm -hmm.
2: yeah (laughs) i call it the importance of developing muscles to notice harm before it boils into something tragic like this i love that. Social worker. I, <laughs> I feel like we we need to do some weightlifting. You know, we're so uh, fragile when it comes to um, our willingness to uh, have difficult conversations, our willingness to confront. Right? Um, it's this whole idea of being a real, uh, an active bystander that right. actually has been proven to be one of the most effective way to prevent any kind of violence, sure. is being a, an active bystander, whether it's sexual violence, domestic violence, this type of violence. And it goes with the rhetoric piece too, you know? And um, be willing to say, hey, even you don't have to be an expert in um, all these topics. You don't have to be completely woke and know all the different things to talk about. All you know is if you know, your gut tells you, this is not right, this feels dehumanizing. Um, and you know you have a, a black friend, a brown friend, an Asian friend, and, and you think about them, You know, bring their faces to your minds, and you, you think about they're gonna be hurt if they hear this, then you should be saying something. Mm-hmm. Even if, if it, it's a simple, you know what, you shouldn't be saying that because that's hurtful, mm-hmm. or that's harmful, and that's it. That could disrupt an entire kind of, you know, conversation that could lead to further further harm, right? So just the idea of being an active bystander and disrupting the cycle, whether it's a conversation or whether it's an act, I think it's so, so important for us to learn.
3: Shachan, that is, you've made so many important points uh, just, just now. Um, you know, and the, the one that I want to focus in on now is, you know, you mentioned that... America has had a long history mm-hmm. of, of, of prejudice and bigotry towards Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. And while uh, certainly the the cases in violence have increased over the last year, some 149 percent, right. um, this is not new. Right. Uh, this has happened throughout the history of the United mm-hmm. States and when mm-hmm. Asian uh, descendants began to immigrate uh, here to the States. Now, growing up, uh, when, you, when, you, uh, when you arrived here as an immigrant and, and now uh, you have conversations uh, you know, with, with children, uh, with, with the next generation of Asian Americans and, and Pacific Islanders who are growing up in this country, we often hear from our African American colleagues about the talk. Uh-huh. the talk about what it's like to uh, or have to grow up as a black, a black or brown person uh-huh. do those kind of conversations happen within the asian community and when you know what, what are you taught a, as uh, an asian a person of an asian uh, ancestry and uh-huh. an asian american what do you teach the next generation uh, of what it means to be uh, both of Asian descent as well as an American citizen?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because I think, um, I know actually that there is a generational divide when it comes to the um, AAPI community, when it comes to you know um, confronting racism. Uh, and part of that has to do with uh, the, the historical kind of uh, narrative here and um you know how uh, the sort of title of model minority has been relegated to the asian uh, american community i think the older generation like you know my parents for example i mean a, a great example is when my parents heard that i went to the rail, uh, the march and rally this saturday in atlanta mm-hmm. uh their first instinct was you shouldn't do that yeah right um one of the uh, one of the speakers at the rally, an Asian speaker, an Asian woman said, her, um, she's here today and speaking out, but her, her parents don't know she's there because they would be absolutely devastated that mm-hmm. she's there. You know, so there's, there's a real, I think part of it is perhaps our, also our cultural upbringing and um, don't make waves, you know, just comply and um, just work hard, Uh, stay under the radar Uh, those are sort of things that have been that we've been taught you know and I think that's difficult to break through Um, and uh, generationally I think there's a divide between how the younger generation uh, responds to this and how the older generation responds so I don't I wasn't necessarily taught like what oh, to sure. do because my parents were never in America. Right, right. Um, I was taught about Western culture they don't necessarily have a very positive view about Western culture in fact um, you know one of the struggles that I had in becoming a Christian was because was my parents um, uh, really didn't want me to be a Christian because they equated Christianity to Westerners mm. it's the religion of the Western people. Right. And so what, the way they equate that is seeing it as an abandonment or betrayal of my traditional Chinese roots, which, of course, is, it's not what my faith is about. It's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus, uh, but that is their view, right? Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to kind of break that, um, that view that they have, the connection that they make between Christianity and being the religion of the white people, essentially. Well, and understandably so, sure. right? With yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there are reasons for that, and yeah. good reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I think with my own kids, I think... Um, Uh, Now, I myself had to educate myself, you know, reading about, you know, what the experiences of the uh, Chinese immigrants, Asian immigrants in the US, starting from the 1850s, when the first wave of, you know, Chinese laborers, the railroads, you know, they were cheap labor, you know, they were seen as threats to uh, white people's jobs, and they were scapegoated, Uh, they were you know, targeted as dirty, you know, the whole term of yellow peril came from that and Mm -hmm. um, and then leading to the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, you know, all those things that have happened. I think uh, it's important for our younger generation to know that this there is a, a narrative here that this is historically this has happened that has Brought us to where we are today, and and that if we're not aware of what happened and the history of it, uh, then we're gonna we're gonna be ignorant about how to how to really confront it and how to find the solutions uh, and work for a better, more equitable world, not just for API community, but really for all of our POCs. Right. Sure. So
3: now, before we we let you go and ask our final question, I just mm-hmm. want to ask you. Um, do you see hope? Obviously, we're, we're living in a very, under a very dark cloud right now after the events of last week. But are there signs of hope uh, for us?
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. And I can tell you that one of the biggest signs of hope for me is, is my own Two girls. Um, once, once in college, a junior in college, and once a junior in high school, and their sort of level of activism <laughs> is admirable. Uh, I, I, and I'm being completely honest here. I have learned so much from them. Um, they have taught me about the depth of their knowledge about systemic racism. It's impressive. Um, I think we have so much to learn from the younger generation, and I'm grateful that that's where I see I see the hope. You know, and and the way that they're able to make connection. My my youngest uh, junior in high school just understanding the connection between power, uh, who you vote, and the importance of voting, and who you put in position of power uh, to make policies. It's impressive, right? And she she was. Um, she engaged in a local uh, organization um, that was advocating to uh, help people register and fill out the census. You know how many adults, American adults, understand the, you know, connection between census, right. <laughs> filling out the census, and voting, right? Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, and she was, you know, doing that. And so those that's the biggest sign of hope for me is the next generation. Um, and I hope that they will lead us. And I hope that we will have the humility to let them lead. Mm-hmm. And there's also hope in terms of, you know, um, our faith community, you know, within uh, the CBF community and seeing uh, uh, the outpouring of support and um, uh, the pastors and ministers who are willing to take the risk mm-hmm. to address this. Uh, from the pulpit and I would, my challenge for them is to uh, really seek out a m- much more holistic discipleship. Um, you know, a sermon from the pulpit alone is not going to change people. It, it needs to be part of congregational life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I hope, and I, my hope is that the faith community um, can be a part of this uh, change too. And mm-hmm. I, I definitely have seen positive signs in that area too, even though there are absolutely still a lot more work to do. So those are just some, pieces that i wanted to share in terms sure. of the hope that i see i love it um yeah
3: yeah i I mean we echo those same words we've been saying it over and over again this next generation just sees and does life entirely different than the rest of us oh my goodness and let me <laughs> and,
2: tell you they don't take any i mean, <laughs> they not. I mean. it's, it's, it's not exactly. even emotional for them they're, my my gosh they are so like there's like what? oh no it's it's this.
0: Yes. This race, it's racist. racist. Yeah. And here's why. And I don't care if you are my grandpa.
2: Even for me as a social worker, sometimes I'm even like, Oh my gosh, that sounds, you know, <laughs> but I'm like, I admire that. I'm like, my yes. gosh, there's no, like, no BS. It's just like, that's, that's right. racist. That's exactly that's, right. They call it what it is. <laughs> TikTok <They're like>, empowered.
3: <laughs> that's exactly right.
2: <laughs> and yeah. I just love that. That to me is just, yeah. And just having these two young people, you know, just gives me a lot of hope, yeah. um, you know, and, even though I didn't do much in terms of helping them. I mean, they just seem to get it. It's Mm. kind of part of the DNA, which I really just appreciate and am very grateful for.
3: Well, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. Before we let you go though, uh, Autumn's got one final
0: question for you. Yeah. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything we've talked about today, what is your more to tell?
2: My more to tell is to not lose hope um, Mm -hmm. to be an active bystander, um, that, uh, wherever you are, you, um, you can, you can be that change. Uh, and sometimes it just takes one word from you, whether it's stop it, don't do that. Uh, it can be as simple as just a few words to disrupt this vicious cycle of racism and violence. So I would encourage uh, anyone, whatever role you play, whether you're a pastor, a minister, a lay person, that you allow, uh, your faith to give you the courage to do what is right. So that's my last word.
3: Shajen Caps, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Uh, for those of you who want to thank know more you. about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, you can check them out at cbf.net, and uh, they're doing a lot of good work around the world. And uh, we appreciate you being here, even though they are under this uh, under this uh, circumstance. Uh, you have given us hope today, and thank you so much for that.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Mitch and Autumn. It's been a pleasure.
1: Shajen, thank you so much for joining us with Good uh, Good Faith Weekly. And to our listeners, we just want to say thank you for listening. And until next time, keep living good faith.